Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask with me, Naisha Frey, and this week's guests, Kanisha Bethay and Regina Townsend, as we delve into the topic of infertility in the African-American community. Let's get back into the conversation. Regina, if you can help color this in, especially through your experience in your organization, um, what does infertility look like for men? And how does it affect them? That's a deep one. And that's another area that really um, our our brothers don't get the support um, and visibility that they deserve. And some of that Mm -hmm. is by choice in terms of visibility. But um, there has been a serious imbalance to how infertility is discussed and that it skews more towards women. Um, Even medically speaking, most of the testing is going to be done on the woman first before they even say, let's see if there's an issue with the partner. Um, And so what happens for most men is twofold. One if the if they haven't been tested or anything yet and they're in a committed relationship, they're dealing with the weight of trying to help balance their partner's emotional state while they're mm. dealing with all the testing, all the putting it together and figuring out where to go next and how do we do this and how can we pay for this and all the emotional weight that she's under. And he doesn't really feel like he has a place. I can't Mm -hmm. say that I wanted kids and I'm nervous about having kids because then that'll make her feel like this or Mm -hmm. that'll make her think she can't depend on me. And I need to be what she can depend on because that's what I've been taught about being a man. And then the flip is if there is an issue from the male perspective in terms of his own fertility, now there's now we're dealing with what is manhood. Now we're dealing Mm. with what does it mean to be a man? Now we're dealing with all of these negative stereotypes about what happens if a man can't get a woman pregnant. Um, And they have their own stereotypes also. You know, they've been portrayed, especially men of color, as this virile, you know, baby making machine kind of thing Mm -hmm. and how that's so equated to who they are. Um, that it is an internal fight of, well, what does this mean about who I am and who I am to her and who I am in my community? And what if I'm the only son? Does my family lineage end with me? Like Mm -hmm. there's all this weight. And many cases, Mm -hmm. they don't have anybody to talk to because even how fertility treatment is marketed, you don't really see men Unless it's a same-sex couple, you don't really see men Mm. investigating their fertility. Um, And you don't really see anything speaking to them about how it's okay, how how can we support you, do you feel heard? Um, And in many cases, I found that there are men who have experienced this, and it's not until they kind of are discussing it amongst friends, if they are discussing amongst friends, that they'll find out that they're not the only one. They'll Mm -hmm. find out, oh, I didn't know that you guys dealt with this also. I didn't know that this was a thing because it's not barbershop conversation. And Mm -hmm. when they find out that they've had other friends who've dealt with it, it's almost like, man, I missed my opportunity to have somebody to to vent to about this. Mm -hmm. And we have to make it safer for them 
to have these conversations. Yes, and I must say that, you know, um, this conversation is is between three women. Um, I would like to have, you know, a male counterpart in this conversation. Who knows? That might be a part two. You all stay tuned. If you know some brothers out here who would like to engage in a discussion, you know, about these um, topics and issues, I think this will be a great platform to do that. As you were talking, Regina, I was thinking about, um, you know, just the assumption that men will be able to continue to have mm-hmm. babies and, and, and be able to produce healthy sperm, you know, all the way up until the day that they die. Um, are those facts? Is that fiction? Like, what is that about? Is that something that we really need to be, um, you know, sharing, promoting, um, we really co-signing. need to be talking about it. <laughs> we really need to be talking about it for two reasons. For one, there's so many things that can happen um, that can make it impossible for a man to produce sperm. And so mm-hmm. if you didn't even know that that was a thing and you've spent all these years, they've done all this testing on your, your partner and then you find out, oh, it's been me this whole time. That's heartbreaking. It would be mm-hmm. better if from the beginning, we all understood all the different contributing factors to not being able to get pregnant. Um, and then the other side of it is for those who are seeking or in need of donor sperm, if we don't have these conversations and make them a little bit more accessible, we don't have very many Black men who are going to go and donate sperm. And so then if you have a couple who is a black couple who is seeking a black donor and go to the sperm bank, there's very limited resource for them. Um, So we have to make it a little bit more accessible for men to discuss this, but also taking some of the shame and stigma off of it and how this does not make you less of a man. This does not make you, um, you know, not important. This does not take away your, or diminish your voice, Um, but that there are issues, there are things that affect men also. And so we have to talk about it and give them the opportunity to talk about it so that they can then make those decisions. You know, it may not be that they want kids of their own, but from a, you know, a service perspective, you know, they might say, you know, I don't think I ever want to have kids, but I can see the value of perhaps being a donor for someone else. Mm. I can see mm-hmm. the value of making sure that the young men in my life don't look at sex and fatherhood as what define manhood. Like having the conversation doesn't necessarily mean that they want to have children of their own, but it does mean that we can start changing the narrative for those who come in behind us. Very, very important. Kanisha, do you have any thoughts or insights that you want to share in regard to this topic of, you know, men, um, especially around the emotions of men as it relates to dealing with infertility and um, their experiences, you know, negotiating this? And I know that you're a woman, Mm -hmm. um, so there is that. But what do you have any insights on that or any reflections? Well, you know, I was shaking my head. (laughs) continuously as Regina was talking. Um, But then it also made me also just kind of think of a friend of mine um, who also was going through this journey, but married. 
Um, and that's a whole nother conversation in itself, how um, couples are viewed when they're dealing with infertility versus single mm-hmm. um, people who are going through infertility. Uh, it's more acceptable. Um, is looked at differently when you're with a couple than it is when you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's a, another topic. Itself. No, that's today. Um, but <laughs> I um, just in thinking about, you know, people that I know. Um, and Regina, you you may have definitely could speak more to this, but I, I find that it's more acceptable um, if the female is having issues, like if there's something wrong with her eggs that she gets an yep. egg donor. Um, versus if her eggs are fine, but it's his sperm situation, mm. getting a sperm donor changes mm. that whole yep. conversation and openness to this whole fertility journey in itself. Mm. Yep. Um, and sometimes closes the conversation. Yes. Sometimes when that's on the table, it goes from we'll do what we need to do to, well, that was a that was an interesting conversation, and I guess we've resolved to live child free. For a lot of people, that's where the that's the end of it. We're not going to talk about this any further. Mm. So it sounds like one of the things that popped up in my mind is that, and of course, the caveat is there is no man here to share his insights or perspectives. So we would love to have a conversation with some brothers about this. Um, But one of the things that I'm thinking about is, is it the sort of thing where maybe, and and we don't have to answer the question, right? We may be talking to our listeners. Is it the question that men see a woman carrying the sperm of another man, almost like cheating or betrayal, even if there's no sex involved? Um, Or is it... Um, and or it could be both and as we like to say sometimes um, just uh, a huge um, disappointment for them something that they need to process something that they need um, support in as it relates to how it attacks their sense of self their sense of manhood um, their sense of capability their sense of strength Um, I'm just wondering to our audience you know to kind of um lean in some more into that. And of course, if Regina and, and Kanisha have any insights you can share, but that's just one of the reflective questions that I have as I'm listening to this. I think it's also that there's a visible, that's a visible reminder for at mm-hmm. least nine months and you're left out. Mm-hmm. You can't feel the baby move. You can't say that you have a genetic connection. You can't. And so there's all of these little deaths of like, I don't get this part of the experience. I don't get this part of the experience. I let her down. I let myself down. Like all of that guilt and shame, plus a visible reminder that you're not a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- I was just going to kind of tap in with that, Regina, because that hit a nerve for me um, in terms of, you know, being single, going through this journey and then maybe someone coming into your life um, while you're on this journey um, and then and them now wanting to be a part of this. But you're so far gone in the journey and cost is an issue, um, as, as we spoke of earlier, then. Some of the things that you were saying, Regina, just resonated with me in terms of how he may be feeling in terms of being left out. Um, 
will will he be able to really accept the child as his um, and see himself in this child as their father? Um, where do they fit in with that puzzle? Because oftentimes, because I've been thinking about this for so much for so long, um, I have to work on myself making sure that I am being inclusive in this process. Um, but then even with that, you know, I'm still dealing with the emotional impact of all of this myself. And so how do you how do you find that balance? And then there's always that thing in the back of your mind of that person can always just leave. I mean, they can be like, this is just too much and I'm just out. Um, and so here I am still, um, you know, me and the baby. Mm -hmm. So because you're because you're single now doesn't mean that you're going to be single always. And at what point in this journey does somebody come into this um, to into your life and into your process in a way that's healthy and um, doesn't result in any type of either you lashing out at them or them like you you want to have a healthy relationship. You want to have a healthy life. And it's kind of hard, I would imagine, being single and recognizing that there's still an opportunity for an unknown factor to come in. And that's all you're dealing with going through this process. It's the unknown factor. Yeah. And that's what causes the stress, mm -hmm. um, frustration, and all of the emotional baggage that mm -hmm. goes with it. You hit the nail on the head. It's that, those unknown factors. Mm -hmm. So um, now what I want to do is for us to just go ahead and dive into some of the most common and most effective ways women and men can overcome infertility um, and the general costs associated with them. Regina, would you like to start us off in telling us about some of the most common ways and um, that people address this issue? Well, I think there there is a misconception that the first and most prominent way is in vitro fertilization. And in many cases, that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily the step that some people have to take. So there's various ways and reasons why someone may be experiencing fertility issues. For some, it may be an ovulation issue where your body's just not ovulating. You might have polycystic ovary syndrome, um, which is a hormonal imbalance. You may have thyroid issues that may just mean that your body is not ovulating as it should, in which case then you can take an over you know, you can take an oral medication like Clomid or Clomiphene that makes your body ovulate better. Um, in many cases, it could be that there are nutritional things that you can work on, um, stress relief, acupuncture, massage, meditation. Sometimes those things can help as well. So in terms of medications, that's after you've tried. Like you said, it's one full year of trying if you're under 35. If you're over 35, it's that's shortened to six months of unprotected sex without getting pregnant that they may say, you know what, let's take a, a closer look. Um, for some people, there is issues that need to move forward to IVF. So for instance, for myself, both of my fallopian tubes are completely blocked. So there's no way for mm -hmm. egg and sperm to meet. So to mm -hmm. get around that, they would do IVF, which is when they would harvest the eggs, meet them with sperm outside of the body, and then put them back as embryos. 
that's something that, yeah, you got to get around the, the tube. So yeah, we would go to IVF. But also IVF is a chance. It's not a cure. Mm. It doesn't fix. It just goes around it and it may not work. You know, there's many people who've done multiple rounds of IVF and for what it costs, which like you mentioned earlier, can be up to, you know, it can get very high depending on where you live. It may be covered by your insurance, but even then what your insurance covers may be the treatment itself, but not the medication, or it may cover a certain amount of rounds, but not past that point. Um, you may have to get a job that covers it. Some places like Starbucks or Google, like their employees get fertility included in their insurance. But certain states, it's mandated where you have to be covered. Where other states, you don't have any coverage at all. It's looked at as an elective procedure that you can choose not to do. And when they do that, they take away the concept that reproductive health is health. The idea that mm. your body is not functioning the way it was designed to function and therefore you should be given access mm. to equitable health care. Mm. Um, and so that's why there's tons of people fighting every day to get fertility coverage um, included for their state. But yeah, there's there's tons of perception about going straight to IVF, but in many cases that may not be necessary. It could be a matter of helping you to ovulate. It could be a matter of, um, I know that in some cases there's sexual dysfunction that can lead to infertility. So there are oral medications, there are natural and homeopathic uh, treatment options, and then you get to assisted reproductive technology. And that's when there's IVF, surrogacy, um, IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. That's where they would take sperm and implant it directly into the woman's body so that it just kind of helps give it a boost to get closer to where the eggs may be. Um, that's a cheaper option. And in many cases that works for people. And then there are some insurance plans that may say that you have to do that three times before they'll even cover mm. IVF. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pathways to parenthood. And what I would say also since we're talking about the paths to parenthood is you have to get clear with yourself about what's more important. Is it more important to be a parent or is mm -hmm. it more important to be pregnant? Because mm. when you start adding up the costs and looking at the treatment options and all of that good stuff, it can be very overwhelming. And you may choose to say, you know what? I don't really need to be pregnant. I can look at adoption. I can look at surrogacy. But you have to make that decision. I don't like, and I don't think anybody is helped when people push the just adopt. Because adoption is not free. Adoption mm -hmm. comes with its own set of costs, its own set of emotional strains. Mm -hmm. It comes with all of that. So I don't like when people throw that out there. But... I do think if you get clear with yourself about what's most important to you, what will make you feel like you're being true to yourself, you may decide, you know what, I don't necessarily need to get pregnant. I don't need this to go that way. I just know becoming a parent is something I was destined to be. And then you might make completely different decisions. 
Mm-hmm. I definitely want Kanisha to weigh in on this topic of uh, adoption and um, maybe even if you both can touch on how does being black affect options for adoption? So go ahead, talk about your feelings in regard to the options in most common ways and effective ways. Um, what Regina said was just, it was just so important when she said, what's important to you? Mm-hmm. Um, because when I first found out that, okay, you getting pregnant naturally, it's going to be a challenge for you. Mm-hmm. That's, that may not be your path right now. Um, you know, of course I went through that whole emotional devastation mm-hmm. with that piece, but then I thought I, the end goal is I want to be a parent. You know, I always saw myself as being a parent, raising a child, having a family. I, I say that again, because that, that was part of my vision as well. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I, once I got through the emotional um, impact of knowing that pro- probably I would not be able to have a child, um, I did look into adoption. Um, and as Regina said, adoption is not cheap. Um, and in a lot of ways, it can be just as costly as IVF, if you don't have to go through as many cycles and all the other things that can um, play into the cost of IVF and treatment and things of that nature. Um, and so with that, I was like, well, maybe I'll go to fostering, you know, let me look into different ways that you can adopt. So you can go through private organizations um, and groups where it does tend to cost more um, to go that route, or you can, um, you know, go through social services. Um, where I live, um, going through social services, the process is fostering to adopt. Um, and so I went through the classes, um, which are intense. Um, all of the, the counseling that is related to that. I spoke with, uh, children who were fosters, um, who also were fosters, but became that, you know, ended up being adopted, um, And I got all the way to the end, all the way to the end of the process. And it just really hit me. And and another thing with me too, is I wanted, I either wanted a baby or a young child. Um, So that also plays a role um, in the success of you potentially being able to foster, to adopt. Um, And for those of us who want younger children, and then even that's an emotional that's something you have to deal with yourself because then you feel guilty, like you're closing the door on children who are older but need a parent. Um, and you're saying your end goal is you, you want to be a parent, but there's nothing wrong. I had to come to that reality that there's nothing wrong with me wanting to have a younger child. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, those are challenges in itself because oftentimes younger children um, the, the end goal to any child going into social services is to reunite that child back with their family. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's not the mother and father, then it can be grandmothers, aunts, uncles. Um, and so younger children, more so than older kids, are often, if not able to go back to their mothers or fathers, are taken in by other family members. Um, and so that emotional toll of taking in a child, caring for this child, loving this child and then knowing that this child may not Mm -hmm. stay with you, that, you know, that child may go back to, you know, their family, which in the end probably is best for that child. And that's what you want. What is best for the kid? But can my question to myself was, can I handle that Mm -hmm. emotionally? Am I opening up wounds 
that, you know, I know I probably shouldn't be opening. And so that's when I did made the decision that, well, there, there are other choices in terms of going IVF, things of that nature, where I may have the opportunity to still be pregnant because mm-hmm. that is something too I wanted to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the end, having a child. Um, and then if that does not work for whatever reason, adoption is always there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just had to reconcile that with myself and decide, you know, as Regina said, what is best for you? What makes sense for you? Thank you for sharing that. You know, and that brings up so many different um, ideas and topics, you know, um, even as it relates to the number of Black children that are in the foster care system, um, the the number of families that um, may or may not be fully equipped to fully love and care for um, children and take them in and things of that sort. And this brings me to a kind of roundabout topic, (laughs) um, but where my politics, um, takes me, which is, um, and, and excuse me for going too far, but it's my show. Okay. Where is the pro-life community on this? So one of my things is that I am a person, I will outwardly state that my politics are that I am a person who believes in choice. I believe in choice. I believe in women and men being able to make decisions about whether or not they are ready to have a child when it's conceived. And if they are not ready or able to have that child for whatever reason, that they have the opportunity at the earliest possible time to, if need be, have an abortion. I understand that there is a lot of controversy around that, that a lot of people don't agree with me, um, and that a lot of that is steeped within our um, faith community and our faith beliefs. I am a Christian. Um, I go to a Baptist church. Um, I believe in God and Jesus is my savior. At the same time, my politics are what they are. Um, And I don't think that one excludes me from the other. Um, And so when I hear Kanisha and I hear Regina talking about challenges that mothers have and men have with bringing forth life, and, you know, we talk about advocacy and who's out there fighting for us. And the only time that I really see the pro-life community, and I, I don't I don't know where you all stand on this issue. I, I haven't asked. I have a feeling that I know where, where Kanisha is. But um, but all I hear them talk about is abortion. It's kind of like what we were talking about before. We're very one-sided, sexual health, reproductive health as it relates to, to condoms and, and birth control. But is there anybody that's also talking about how can we support families? How can we support women? How can we support men who who want to be parents, but have um, medical or financial restrictions from being able to do that? You went there. Um, (laughs) It's it's it is one of the things that I have tried to wrap my head around in the years that I've had the broken brown egg. Um, So the broken brown egg 
has been around about 13 years and it came from a space of me not finding anybody else who was talking about infertility that looked like me when I was Mm. first learning that I was dealing with it. Um, And the fertility community was very white. It was very um, midlife, I'll say. And Mm. I did not feel like I fit because I was married young. So I was 24. Five when I was looking at my fertility. I did not mm-hmm. have that many years in my career yet. I was still working towards my master's degree. So a lot of it felt really out of touch for me. And as I was looking into it and researching it, I kept finding, I kept putting in reproductive health in my searches. And when I put in reproductive health, what came up was always contraceptive and abortion services. And I was like, but that's that's not that's not reproduction that's that's contraception <laughs> that's not the same right. um and it really frustrated me because the more that i would look for reproductive health services reproductive health organizations reproductive health legislation it was always mm. centered on abortion care and contraceptive care and so i have really tried to make sure that I speak to the point that reproductive health encompasses all parts of reproduction. That's actually Mm -hmm. the full definition. When you look from the World Health Organization at the actual definition, it says that reproductive health covers all of it, including the mental and emotional health of it. It includes all of those pieces. And so the only way that we can really get people to start talking about it is for us to start the conversation. Because as of right now, no, it's not included. There is no group that's saying, let's look at the full scope of reproductive health care. Because if they were, then it would say, we need to be talking about preconception. We need to be talking Mm -hmm. about infertility. We need to be talking about safe and healthy pregnancy. And then we need to be talking about the maternal mortality rates and the infant mortality rates, and then moving into parenthood. But instead, we're leaving out a whole lot, basically 75% of it, by only focusing on how to not get pregnant when we don't want you to get pregnant and how to also keep you pregnant when you don't want to be pregnant. (laughs) Mm. You said that. How to keep you pregnant when you don't want to be pregnant. Good gracious, let that marinate. So one of the things that I wanna ask about is that journey inside of the healthcare system. Um, One of my areas of expertise within the field of health equity and public health is patient provider communication and medical mistrust. Um, And I have to give big shout outs to um, a set of scholars who helped inform the way that I shaped this conversation and whose work really compelled me in some of the questions, the terminology that I'm sharing. I have to give my citations and references. And one of the primary ones is an article by Rosario Sabalo, Aaron Graham, and Jamie Hart. Uh, Their research article is called Silent and Infertile, an Intersectional Analysis of the Experiences of Socioeconomically Diverse African-American Women 
with infertility. And when I tell you this article is amazing, I mean, I just, I, I really took a lot from that. And so I have to give um, credit where credit is due. Um, it's published in Psychology of Women Quarterly. And in their study, which was published in 2015, they talked about how they did not find social class differences in the reporting of stereotypes and discriminations and, and, and discrimination in medical settings. Um, they found that highly educated women with higher incomes were equally likely to report experiences of discrimination and doubt when recounting interactions with medical professionals. Even African-American women with advanced educational degrees and professional careers described feeling a loss of control and an absence of agency when interacting with doctors. So my question is, if you guys could share um, with our audience any experiences you've had or know of related to discrimination, racism, sexism, or classism in the medical journey to conceive a child. Well, historically or personally? <laughs> so I know for you, Regina, you um, advocate for and work with a lot of different families. And so I imagine that this may have come up in some of that, um, whether it was you personally, um, folks that you've worked on behalf of. And, you know, I don't know, Kanisha, within your circle of community that you've, you know, um, shared your story with, if any of that has come up or any, even any concern about it? Well, I know that for, for most Black women that I speak to, um, especially when you're looking at things like endometriosis, let's, let's use that one. Endometriosis is an issue that disproportionately affects Black women, just like fibroids and all these other things, um, where the uterine lining grows where it's not supposed to grow, basically. And I mention this because this is March and March is Endometriosis Awareness Month. But when you have endometriosis, you may experience pain because that lining is growing where it shouldn't grow. Same with fibroids, you're dealing with pain. Well, when it comes to black women, when we are going to the doctor and saying, I have this extreme pain, I have this issue, we have a history of feeling like we're not heard. Um, and we know that there, even up until very recently, were doctors who were being taught that Black people experienced pain at different levels. Um, and so when you are struggling with pain that you don't know is a reproductive health issue, because many times we think periods are supposed to be painful, but that's mm. not the case. So when you don't know that's a reproductive health issue, and instead you're just trying to get some help for the pain but you're not believed or you're not given the proper medication or uh, in investigation like that really can slow up your progress towards your fertility goals because nobody even listens to you about the pain. So you didn't even find out until it was what you feel too late that you were not going to be able to get pregnant without this invasive procedure or that you were not going to be able to get pregnant without this lifestyle change. You you feel like you've lost years because somebody didn't first address the root cause of what you were coming to them for in the first place. Um, I know for me, when I first was experiencing fertility issues, I was going because I had periods that were lasting 
upwards of 60 days. And I would Ooh. go and they would be like, well, wow. here's birth control pills. And that'll just, there you go. You'll be all right. Um, and in many cases, if you talk to doctors, there are various reasons why they'll give someone birth control pills. It's not always a that they're just throwing issues, throwing something at the problem. The issue is when it's been years and you've mm-hmm. been saying birth control is not what I want, or if you've been saying, well, I don't like how I feel on birth control, or when you're saying, well, can we find out what's the root cause so that mm-hmm. I don't need the birth control pills? And you're not feeling heard about that. That's when it's like, okay, I don't see this as the same as when I hear my white friends or my white colleagues, or when I see in media, white women ask for the same thing. I feel like they Mm -hmm. have more um, agency to say, I would like a second opinion. They have more agency about what questions to ask. That's when you start to really feel like, okay, this is, this is a black thing. (laughs) You know, you don't want to say that we work really hard not to say that sometimes because we're like, wait, did, was that, uh, did they mean it? You try to catch yourself, but when you start looking at it systemically, then you go, okay, yeah, this is by design and I need to be more empowered so that when I go into these spaces, I can call a thing a thing. One of the things I tell women and men who follow the Broken Brown Egg is always take a pen and a pad and a plan every appointment Mm -hmm. so that you can write down your questions ahead of time, so that you can check your questions when you get there, and so that you can show that doctor, I'm an informed patient. I know what you're supposed to be asking me, and I know what I'm allowed to ask you. I also encourage people to have a friend on speakerphone or take somebody with you. Because sometimes we do get caught up in that. Was that a, that wasn't, maybe that wasn't offensive. I just took it that way. When, if you have somebody on that phone with you or someone in that room with you, they can say, no, that's not how that was supposed to go. Let's ask them this question. Did you remember to ask? Because those things help us to be empowered because sometimes we don't even realize that it's a race issue or that it's a systemic issue in the provider's office. We don't even know that. Yeah, and I think that's really important that um, that we recognize that that's also another level of stress. And one of the reasons why people, Black people in particular, may delay going to the doctor because they realize how much they might have to armor up. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, in the media, um, certain you know, groups will say, oh, well, you're playing the race card, right? And I think one of the things that you mentioned is how much most of us don't want that to be the case. And so we wind up second guessing ourselves, the situation, the interaction, and go through all types of mental calisthenics before we will say, that person was actually being racist toward me or sexist toward me. And now I have to figure out what new strategy I'm going to use to either interact with them or find someone else to work with. So before we go any further, Kanisha, did you have any insights or thoughts around issues related to racism or sexism within this journey of, um, you know, trying to conceive a child and addressing infertility issues? Yeah, and I will say, um, in addition to the isms <laughs> um, that we know are systemic um, throughout healthcare, so it doesn't matter where you put your toe in it, you're, you know, 
um, certain groups are going to experience it in different ways. Um, but just in e even in hearing Regina talk about um, the different challenges that women have with regards to fertility, you know, things that are beyond the, their control is just how their bodies are. Um, I have found, um, and in, even within our community, say in the Black community, um, like when when talking with friends or others about, you know, Kanisha, why don't you have children? Is it fibroids? Is it blah, blah, blah? And there seems to be more of an empathetic ear for those who have those types of mm -hmm. um, fertility issues versus those in my situation where it literally is, I waited too long. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, well, I shouldn't say I waited too long. Um, I am where I am because I am where I am. Mm -hmm. um, but you're, you're viewed differently. So you're looked at as being, you know, selfish or, mm -hmm. you know, you put your work and things mm -hmm. like that, you know, before, you know, your goal of having a family mm -hmm. um, or, you know, maybe you're difficult. And so that's why you didn't get married or that's mm -hmm. why you're not in a relationship. Or things of that nature. So if I find that, yeah, during during the conversations I had, and you know I'm private, so for me mm -hmm. to be doing this in the first place, that's mm -hmm. a big deal for me. Um, but yes, I have found that people look at you differently um, when you don't have necessarily a a, a, um, an, a, a health issue um, that may have resulted in you having challenges um, with with getting pregnant. Um, and then in going into the system itself, um, I'm single. So I go to my appointments by myself. And Regina gave a good um, good advice of bringing someone with you or having someone on the phone. I will say in the beginning, though, although I, although I had shared with my family and friends that I was about to go through this journey, I was still having, I guess, I don't want to say shame, but... Um, I wasn't ready to have someone go with me to appointments yet. Mm -hmm. So let me just let, I'll just say it like that. Um, and when I do go to the appointments, I mean, you know us, we ask questions. That's what mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. So I, I do, I ask questions um, and you can kind of see the reaction um, from, from those in the clinic when you are asking questions as if like the nerve of you to be asking these questions and why are you questioning what I'm doing or what I'm saying to you or how I'm saying to you. How or I'm how do you know things. that? Yes. Or how do you know that? I question the forms and the questions that they're asking on the forms. And why are they asking these questions that they're asking these questions? And so I, I have found that um, it's been kind of adversarial, um, my, my relationship with the clinic versus my relationship with the embryonic group. They mm. are more patient-centered um, they listen to their patients, they're empathetic, they're kind. And then I go into this world and then I'm placed back into, you know, being defensive, mm -hmm. um, and having to advocate difficult. for myself mm -hmm. and, and being seen as being difficult. Mm -hmm. And those are just things. And again, that adds to your stress and things. And those are, that is not the state of mind or the state of being you need to be when you're in the clinic, when you're going through this, um, there's already so many unknowns. Um, about this process, because not many of us have gone through this process. You don't have a lot of people that you can go to to speak about these processes and things that take place. So, um, yes, I, I, I say all that to say, yes, there are isms that we definitely have to deal with. But then I've, I've found this other this other thing um, 
that I didn't expect, mm -hmm. um, you know, as I've been going through this journey. I really appreciate your perspective and your experience. And thank you so much for, you know, letting us in and sharing your experience. I think your perspective is very unique and so important. Very um, important. Very, yes. very important. Did you want to share, uh, Regina, a little bit more? Well, I just think that a lot of the conversation about Black women and childbirth leaves our choice out of it. And so when you speak to women of color, specifically Black women who have decided to be single parents by choice, there is this added guilt and shame that is placed on them. They don't have it. It's placed on them about why did you wait this long and what does it mean? And well, what's that child going to have for a father? And why would you do it this way? And what? And it takes away their right to choice, their right to say, mm -hmm. well, this is what I envision for my life. And this is what I feel I can bring. And I feel like I'm no less of a person who can be a great parent because I'm not a partner. And so there are plenty of women who feel like they can't even discuss that this is the journey that they're planning to take mm -hmm. because they don't have the emotional bandwidth to take on all of that that it requires, plus everybody's mm -hmm. opinions and thoughts about it. So it is important and imperative that we have more people who are experiencing that part of the journey that can express it in a way that can help someone else feel seen because that's half the battle. Once you feel seen, you feel mm -hmm. empowered and you feel like, well, I can face this because I know this person is facing it. And even if they're mm -hmm. not where they're trying to get yet and I'm not where I'm trying to get yet, I at least have somebody that I can look at that I can be reflective with. And I think mm -hmm. that it's so important that we have that and that we empower each other to feel like I have the right to want my life the way that I want it as long as it's not hurting anybody else, mm -hmm. I have the right to have dreams for my life that are mine, that are mine. They're not the villages. They're not my father's or my mother's or my aunties or my grandma. They're mine. And that's mm -hmm. so important. It makes you feel human mm -hmm. and, like you're, and like you matter, that your dreams mm -hmm. matter. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Questions You Didn't Ask, with me, Naisha Frey. And my guests this week, Kanisha Bethay and Regina Townsend. Tune in next week for the conclusion of our discussion on infertility in the African-American community.